the nature of the attack on the 7th of July was wholly exceptional. Um, for that reason, we have been looking to see what more we can do in terms of additional support for um, those victims and their families. And I hope my right honourable friend will be in a position to announce details of that shortly. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to the servicemen and women who died in Iraq? They were serving their country. Three weeks ago, I asked the Prime Minister about the crisis in children's hospitals. He said everything was fine. So can he explain why the Minister responsible for hospitals has resigned? The Minister for Hospitals has certainly not resigned, as far as I'm aware, in respect of anything to do with children's <laughs> hospitals. But let me just... But let me just say to the right honourable gentleman, he did indeed ask me about the position of the children's hospitals, and I explained to him that there were issues in respect of the payment by results tariff for children's hospitals. There are discussions continuing between the hospitals that wrote to us and the Department of Health, and I hope those discussions will result in a satisfactory conclusion. The honourable member for Liverpool Wavertree was the hospitals minister, and she was res she's resigned. I know, I know things are bad, but the Prime Minister ought to know who's actually in his government. She said the government's reforms had resulted in the crisis at Alderhay, and her attempts to speak out have been overruled by number 10. Now, last week, I asked about dangerous foreign criminals who were released instead of deported. We were told that in terms of those who had committed serious offences, there were 79. Then we were told there were 90. This week we were told there are 150. Can he guarantee the number won't go up again? The reason why the number has gone up is simply because, as the police investigate each one of these cases, then the details of those cases change. However, what I can tell him is that... Yes, which is perfectly obvious if one thinks about it for a moment. Of the 1,000 foreign national prison prisoners, however, that were part of the backlog that had built up over a considerable period of time, three-quarters of the cases have now been considered. There have been almost 600 deportation orders given. There have been round about 30 deportations actually already underway, and there is 126 of those people in detention. We will continue to work through the backlog, as I explained before, but I may just state to the right honourable gentleman now that as a result of the changes that are put in place, now all the cases are considered before release, and as I explained to him last week, there is a quite separate issue which we also have to deal with, which in the end is at the heart of this matter, and that is to make sure that those people that are convicted of a serious criminal offence and become foreign prisoners are deported, not retained in this country. Well, if it's all going so well, why did he sack the Home Secretary? Yeah. I mean, after three weeks of investigation, the Prime Minister still can't tell us how many dangerous criminals there are roaming the streets who committed serious offences. Aren't the crises in the health service and the criminal justice system symptoms of a government that is paralysed? In, in the last three days, former ministers have been queuing up to tell the Prime Minister it's time to go. We've had the former education secretary, the pension secretary, the terrorism minister, the former local government minister. They've all said the same thing. Presumably he appointed them because of their judgment. Why does he think he's lost their confidence? If I can ju just uh, go back and deal with the two policy issues that the right honourable gentleman raised. Well, there were only... I know he's not very comfortable with policy, but perhaps I could... Perhaps... Well, I actually, because I thought we might be debating these types of issues, I asked my staff to look out what policies he had. 
I've found two. One on, one on children's clothes and one on chocolate oranges. Other than that, he doesn't seem to have any. So I'm delighted to have a policy debate with him. On the health service, in respect of the children's hospitals, there is an issue to do with payment by results and the tariff. There was a meeting a few days ago at which we listened to the representations of the four hospitals that wrote to us. We are satisfied that we can reach a satisfactory conclusion. And I might just point out to him that we are putting more money into the health service than ever before and getting better results than ever before. And he opposed that additional investment. In respect of the foreign national prisoners, I've explained the situation to him. And let me just say to him, as I said a moment or two ago, for the first time now, we have in place a proper system that allows us to consider for deportation prior to the prisoner's release. But I said last week, and I repeat again, in my view, there should be an automatic presumption of deportation for anyone convicted of a serious criminal offence, and I hope he will agree with that. But from that answer, we can see the Prime Minister won't even address the fact that he's losing the support of his party. Yeah. He lives in a world best summed up by the analysis that was given to him about his local election results by the Number 10 Planning Committee. The, the report was leaked, and this is what it said. I quote, People were angry with Tony because they love him so much. <laughs> and, and they are angry because they think he might go. <laughs> I think that is what they call the view from the bunker. Until a week ago, the Prime Minister was telling us he'd serve a full third term. Why did he change his mind? I'm surprised the right on gentleman to know that I've got no intention of debating that with him. Um, they probably... Well, frankly, frankly there, are, there are probably enough lining up to do that already. Uh, if I can say to him... If I can say to him... What is interesting about this exchange is that policy is the one thing he does not want to talk about. Yeah? And I agree it has been a difficult time for the government, but in the end, it is policies on the economy, on public investment in our public services, on things like the minimum wage and lifting children and pensioners out of poverty, on overseas aid, and yes, on the environment, where he's already changed the policy he had a few weeks ago. It is on policy that ultimately will determine the fate of this government and the decision of the electorate in the next general election. The issue of how long he stays in office is of key public interest. Let me remind him about the clearest pledge he gave about this issue. He said, a full term is a full term and that is what it means. He said that when he went to Khartoum. Presumably he wanted to see the place where Gordon was murdered. put a smile on the face of the Deputy Prime Minister. <laughs> Could the Prime Minister unravel a mystery for us? Why doesn't he trust the Chancellor to take over the government now? Speaker, first of all, I think it is, I mean, no doubt he has been rehearsing those lines all morning, but... Well, I think so. I thought it was a little rehearsed myself. But again, I simply issue the invitation to debate policy. I mean, he's mentioned two, one on the health service and one on law and order, but he's not really prepared to debate them. And I may say he's not the first Conservative leader to either call for or predict my departure. There were four others. I'm still here and they're not. There's hardly a politician in this place that isn't predicting his departure. 
hasn't the Prime Minister put himself in a catch-22? If he sets a timetable for leaving, he's told us there will be paralysis. But if he refuses to set a timetable, his government will remain paralysed. Isn't it becoming increasingly clear that he should go, and go soon? Well, first of all, let me thank you for that very kind advice that I'm sure is meant in the interest of myself and my party. But I tell you what I think is important for us to do is to deliver our manifesto. And that manifesto is about making sure that we keep a strong economy because we have the lowest interest rates and lowest unemployment for decades. It's about delivering extra investment in the National Health Service and schools. It's about improving the minimum wage and maternity pay and maternity rights. And it's about, as we'll see over the next few weeks, sorting out the pensions issue in our country and energy policy. And there is one difference between me and him. I am here delivering the manifesto that we were elected upon. He wrote his party's last manifesto and now doesn't stand by a word of it. Would my right honourable friend agree? Would my right and honourable gentleman's addressing the House? Honourable gentlemen, would, would my right friend agree that we still have a mountain to climb in terms of getting the right skills for the population? And isn't the news from Australia just a few hours ago that London has won the bid to be the host of the London Skills Olympics in 2011 a real boost considering we beat Australia, France and Sweden? Um, well, I think it, I would like to offer my congratulations uh, to all who managed to win this, um, the opportunity to host the World Skills competition here in London. But I'd also point out to my right on friend that one of the reasons why, of course, we won that competition, as he stresses under very fierce competition from other countries, is because over the past few years we have put extra resources uh, into skills education in this country and allowed about three quarters of a million of people to get qualifications they didn't previously have. And it is the emphasis that we have placed on a skilled workforce that has allowed us to make that progress. St. Mingus Campbell. May I, John? May I join the Prime Minister in his expressions of sympathy for those who gave their lives in Basra and also to their family and friends. Does the Prime Minister understand the extent of anxiety and hardship in rural areas caused by the government's mishandling of the single farm payment scheme? Yes, um, we, of course we do, which is why um, after the, executive, the chief executive of the agency resigned, we've tried to make sure that this money is paid through to people. And it will be extremely important to make sure that the changes that have been made over the past few months um, are kept going so that people get the payments to which they're due. Sir Mingus Campbell, the Prime Minister knows it's not just DEFRA. There's trouble at the Home Office and there's now, from today's report from the King's Fund, trouble in the National Health Service. Might I ask the Prime Minister this? Following his reshuffle, does he accept that the people of the United Kingdom are much more likely to be uh, motivated by appreciation of the government's performance rather than personalities, and that his ministers will be judged by their achievements, not their preference for him or the Chancellor? When will he do something about the National Health Service, about DEFRA, and also about the Home Office? Um, well, we are actually doing something about the National Health Service. I agree there are, are difficult changes being put in place at the moment. Uh, Arda, could I ask the host, both sides of the host, to settle down? 
Prime Minister. There are difficult changes being put through in the National Health Service at the moment, but the important thing is that we are able to achieve um, the target that we have set of an 18-week maximum wait for people, not just inpatient, but outpatient and inpatient. That is revolutionising the way that the National Health Service works. It will mean people can book their appointments and it will build on the fact that we used to have hundreds of thousands of people waiting over six months on an inpatient appointment. We don't anymore. We used to have people waiting years for simple operations like cataracts. We don't do that. And it builds, of course, on the fact that we've got somewhere in the region of 85,000 extra nurses in the National Health Service. Now, I would have thought that's a pretty good list of achievements in the National Health Service, and I thank him for the opportunity of saying so. Chris Mullen. Could I uh, draw the Prime Minister's attention to the publication today by uh, Amnesty International uh, of a report on the havoc caused uh, by the trade uh, in small arms? Does he recall uh, that one of the recommendations of his Commission for Africa was that negotiations should begin uh, on an uh, arms trade treaty uh, by the end of 2006. Will he put his weight behind such negotiations? Because I fear that not much will happen if he doesn't. The point that my uh, right honourable friend makes is very, very important indeed. And let me just tell him that there will be um, negotiations um, so that we can achieve a treaty, hopefully, at the UN General Assembly this autumn. Um, and this was, uh, this was raised, um, indeed, not just during the course of our EU presidency, but also the Commonwealth heads of government. We're also in touch with all those people to do with civic society that have led this campaign. Um, and I hope very much we will get a treaty that is sufficiently effective that it includes all the major arms exporting states. But I, I do say this is not just about constraining um, the sales of defence equipment which, is, which are illegitimate, but it's also about tackling illicit and irresponsible transfers, particularly, as he says, on small arms, which do so much damage and kill so many people so tragically in Africa. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Um, may I draw the Prime Minister back to one of the answers that he gave to my right honourable friend? Last week, he said quite unequivocally, everyone who is a foreign national who serves a prison sentence will be automatically deported. Then a few days later, the Lord Chancellor said, unless there are special circumstances, we need to think about whether or not somebody who commits an imprisonable offence should be deported. Can the Prime Minister tell the House just who is determining government policy? Let me explain to the, right, uh, the Honourable Gentleman why uh, the point that he is making is wrong. By, um, well, he asked for it. I'm about to give the answer. The fact is that the people who should be deported are foreign prisoners. In other words, one, they are foreign, two, they have been in prison. So the point that my right honourable gentleman, my right honourable friend was making was not that it's everybody who's convicted of an imprisonable offence, because some of those people may not go to prison, but everyone who is in prison should be deported. That's why they're called foreign prisoners. <laughs> Mr Speaker, when preparing for a, for a speech on Workers' Memorial Day at the Memorial in Bathgate, I was shocked to find that in 2004-2005, 220 workers had died in UK workplaces, and there had been a 29% rise in deaths in Scotland to 36. What is the Prime Minister going to do to reverse the trend that shows that since, one, since 1998, 
The UK index has gone up from 100 to 107, when in the same period the index for workplace injuries has gone down to 82 in the EU. First of all, I, I do accept, as my honourable friend implies, that this is a, a serious issue, although I would point out the fatalities are at a record low, with major injuries down two-thirds since 1974. Um, but, as he may know, the Health and Safety Commission have published the strategy for workplace health and safety in Great Britain to 2010, and we are going to make further improvements based on the recommendations in their report, and I hope that will deal with some of the issues that he's raised. Simon Burns. Will, will the Prime Minister please help to expedite the authorisation of the Broomfield Hospital PFI scheme in Chelmsford? Well, as I understand it, the um, PFI review team visited the trust in the Honourable Gentleman's constituency last week. Uh, I understand it was a successful meeting. Um, there are a number of um, financial, I think, and contractual issues that need to be resolved, and we expect the work to take approximately six months, but we hope it will have an optimistic conclusion to it. And this is a, a scheme that I think is, is, is worth around about £170 million or more. So it's obviously a very, very important development, and I think I can give uh, the Honourable Gentleman assurance that it will go ahead as quickly as they possibly can once, as I say, they've sorted out these remaining issues. John Smith. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Over 25,000 people die every year in this country from deep vein thrombosis. That is more than breast cancer, AIDS, and road traffic accidents put together. As this is National Thrombosis Week, will my right honourable friend join me in congratulating Lifeblood, the thrombosis charity, for raising awareness of this deadly <coughs> and debilitating disease? And can he tell me? what measures his government is going to introduce to reduce this alarming number of deaths in our hospitals. Yes. First of all, again, let me say I, I entirely understand the uh, concern of my honourable friend in respect of the issue that he raises, and there are around about 25,000 deaths a year from thromboembolism, and it's a serious issue, as he rightly implies, that requires comprehensive action. Following the report, I think last year, of the health uh, select committee, the Department of Health established an independent expert working group that's reporting to the Chief Medical Officer. There are recommendations that will be made by summer this year, so we will be in a position uh, within the next few weeks to say what more we can do to try and tackle this problem. Nadine Doris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Speaker, a 77 year old farmer in my constituency fired a warning pellet at a stray dog that was worrying his sheep. A dozen armed policemen and six police cars arrived up his drive, arrested him in front of his terrified grandchildren and then detained him in a cell for hours without allowing him to speak. When the Prime Minister said he was tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime, was that what he meant? Um, for fairly obvious reasons, and I can say so with respect to the Honourable Lady, I don't know anything about the particular case that she's raised, and obviously how the police respond to a particular incident is for them, but I, I've usually uh, learnt enough about these cases to be wary of commenting on them until the full facts are known. Tom Clark. Mr Speaker, uh, given the African Union discussions last week uh, culminating in the Abuja Agreement, uh, would my right honourable friend explain to the House his understanding of the impact of that agreement on the long-suffering people of Darfur, who are, of course, entitled to the support 
of the whole international community. Well, first of all, I would, I would pay tribute to all those who have been involved in the negotiation, um, particularly the President of Nigeria and, of course, my, my right honourable friend, the Development Secretary, who played an absolutely crucial role, along with others, in getting this agreement done. Um, I think I, I would make two points to my right honourable friend. Uh, the first is that it's important that the government of Sudan end their opposition to the UN force taking over from the Africa Union. And secondly, we have to make sure that in the new force that is deployed, we have sufficient um, firepower that we are able to make sure that any agreement is properly policed. And we are looking at this now urgently with particularly the United States of America but other NATO partners to see what more we can do. The situation in Sudan is very, very serious indeed. There are thousands of people dying needlessly and this is a classic example actually of why um, the Commission for Africa report recommendation about a standing peacekeeping force for Africa is so important because in the end the problem in these situations is not just humanitarian. It's that unless the uh, opposing sides can be kept apart and that requires military force, there is, it is very difficult for the humanitarian aid to be effective and we will continue to work on this very, very hard indeed. Alistair, can Michael? Mr Speaker, this Saturday will be the first anniversary of the massacre in Andijan of innocent, unarmed civilian protesters by Uzbek security forces. What is the government doing to ensure that President Karimov and his loathsome regime are going to be held to account by the international community for that act of butchery. Well, as he probably knows, the UK was at the forefront in condemning um, the disproportionate and indiscriminate use of force that resulted in this um, killing. And it was under our presidency that the European Union imposed measures including a visa ban and an arms embargo um, and those EU measures, we will look at a way of strengthening those. We have also been sponsoring through the European Union the United Nations resolution on it. And I can assure the Honourable Gentleman we will keep up the pressure on Uzbekistan uh, in order to make sure that the human rights situation in Uzbekistan has changed. As West Lancashire has very little burial space and no crematorium, Local people are forced to pay neighbouring local authorities a premium, a high premium, to use their burial plots or crematorium. Will the Prime Minister join the local clergy and residents in calling on the Conservative-controlled West Lancashire County Sorry, West Lancashire District Council to meet their moral obligations and allow local people to bury their dead nearby? I know this is an important issue in my honourable friend's constituency, and local authorities at the moment, as she knows, have no duty to provide burial grounds, although most of them do so, and planning for burial ground provision is part of the authority's normal strategic duties. We are, however, reviewing, um, this is, as she probably knows, and my right honourable friend, Department of Constitutional Affairs, will make announcements on it shortly. Mark Harper. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. On the 8th of February, the Prime Minister, the Health Secretary and the entire Parliamentary Labour Party heard me present a petition to the House on behalf of my 6,056 constituents to support the Dilk Memorial Hospital, a hospital built with contributions from coal miners in the Forest of Dean. Today we've heard of plans to close it due to NHS deficits. My constituents receive just £1,128 of health spending per head, the Prime Ministers enjoy 1,442. Do you think that's fair? I, I, I tell them what I do think is fair to point out, and that is that the 
that funding for West Gloucestershire, which I think in, in includes the Forest of Dean, has increased by 31%. That is £53 million. Yeah, and it's going to increase by a further 20%. That is another £50 million over the next two years. But it has to be the case, surely, that whatever amount of money we put into the health service, that PCTs and hospital trusts live within their budget. But the one thing is for absolutely sure that if they vote Conservative and get a Conservative government, they will get less, not more, money in the health service. Thank you, Mr Speaker. As my right honourable friend will know, the only way to travel in and out of the island of St Helena is by sea. Uh, it takes three days for them to reach the new at a recent CPA conference in Malta, the delegates of St Helena expressed their gratitude for UK investment to enable them to open the airport by 2010. But there are infrastructure problems there uh, concerning water, electricity and road uh, network, network. Can my right honourable friend tell me whether he is aware of any plans by the international community to help the residents of that remote island? Oh, order. Oh, order. I think the Prime Minister will answer. Yeah, I was I was just, when she, when she mentioned St. Helena, I was wondering what was coming in the rest of her question. But anyway, um, if I can say to her, I will, I'm very happy uh, to add that important issue to the rest of my, uh, to the rest of the issues that I have to resolve. But I'm afraid I'm not entirely familiar with the point that she's making. John Maples. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mr. Speaker, I'd like to offer my support to the Prime Minister. For for his decision to relieve the Deputy Prime Minister of departmental responsibilities. <laughs> it's very good for all of us to see nine years of unremitting incompetence finally rewarded. Yeah. But I'd like, my support, I'd like my support to go a little further, because the, because the Prime Minister has been criticised for allowing the Deputy Prime Minister to keep his salary and the vast perks of his office. But I'm with the Prime Minister on this. I think the new arrangement is an improvement. And that the Prime Minister is right that it's better to pay the Deputy Prime Minister for not running a department than to pay him for running one. Well, I remember his Deputy Prime Minister. That was the one that resulted, after two years in office, of the Tories' worst election victory on record. This Deputy Prime Minister, yes, he remembers. Doesn't he? He remembers Michael Heseltine, doesn't he? Yep. He became Deputy Prime Minister two years later. They had the worst election result in the Tories' history. This Deputy Prime Minister presided over three election victories. Yeah. So I prefer President Hezer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, may I congratulate the previous Tory Government for an £8 million investment in the St Asaph Business Park in my constituency in 1990. May I congratulate the previous Tory Government for a £2.5 million investment on a flyover for that, uh, for that business park. But before the Prime Minister starts thinking that he's dealing with the first Labour defection of this Parliament, can I say that that business park lay empty for seven years under the Tories. Since 1997, there has been 2,700 quality jobs created by this Labour government. What measures can he take to ensure that that economic, uh, that economic success continues in my constituency and the rest of Wales? Well, people remember, of course, that in my honourable friend's constituency and men are others. Those were the days when we had interest rates averaging 10%. 
when we had three million unemployed. Oh yes, we, we don't forget those days. Under this government, we've got under this government two million more jobs, the lowest unemployment rate for three decades, interest rates half what they were under the Conservatives, and record investment in schools and hospitals. That is why my honourable friend is right to be proud of his government. Yeah.